Hello, and welcome to Federal Insight, presented by OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. Federal Insight is a new series developed by the Federal Relations team with the goal to bring to you conversations, insights, funny anecdotes, and historical perspective as we look ahead. In addition to hearing from folks here at O'Neill, we will have guests such as former and current members of Congress, government leaders, staffers, and industry experts. Having worked remotely these past 18 months, one of the things I miss most has been sitting in our vice chairman's office, John Cahill, and listening to him share stories of his experiences, the workings and challenges behind the scenes, and the power dynamics during various legislative and historical moments over the years. I hope that our podcast can achieve that same expert insight and storytelling. In our first episode, John Cahill and I catch up with his friend and former client, Tom Kinton of Kinton Aviation Consulting. Tom Kinton worked for the Massachusetts Port Authority for over 35 years, having ended his tenure there as CEO from 2006 to 2011. Equally important, 20 years ago this week, Tom Kinton was the aviation director when two airplanes that originated from Logan Airport were hijacked by terrorists on 9-11. In the ensuing days, It triggered major U.S. initiatives to combat terrorism in the wake of the worst aviation disaster in the world. Here's our conversation with Tom Kinton. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. And John Cahill, good to see you. I think we should just dive right in. So um, certainly we're approaching the 20th anniversary of 9-11. This is a wonderful opportunity to speak with you about um, your experiences as aviation director that day. And then, you know, certainly um, as um, CEO of Massport later on. But uh, as far as um, the day of on 9-11, I think um, oftentimes, especially leading up to anniversaries, we ask colleagues or friends, you know, where were you on 9-11? And I think it's less known that as you are the aviation director for the Massachusetts Port Authority, your day although usually you used to start out at Logan Airport like most days. In fact, you were not even at the airport or in the country um, the morning of 9-11. I'm not sure if you could share with us a bit more about, you know, where you were uh, when you learned about the two planes from Boston that were off the radar and how the subsequent events of the terrorist attack played out. Sure. Um, uh, Correct. I was um, not in Boston. I had left for uh, Montreal that Sunday to an airport conference uh, that happened, it was an international conference of all international, of all airport directors from around the world. ACI runs a, an international conference every five or seven years and this happened to be an international. So I was up there with most of my fellow directors from the United States and uh, around the world as well. And um, it was, I, had, I remember it being Tuesday morning, um, I had called the airport, which is my normal routine, uh, before the day got started to check in with Ed Frenny, who was my director of operations at the time, and said, how are things going? He said, no problems, all good here. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow, uh, which basically I was returning on Wednesday. I said, okay, uh, keep things going. Uh, I'll see you in the morning, um, and hung up. And I was with uh, a fellow colleague of mine at Massport uh, in the uh, exhibit hall of the conference which was away from the hotel I happened to be staying at. And I heard a, somebody in the back mentioning a plane. Uh, they think they just heard a small plane hit one of the towers, one of the World Trade Center towers. So I said to Sam Sliman, who was my um, uh, operations uh, capital program person, I said, did you hear? He said, what? I said, well, I think a plane, a small plane. He said, you want me to call operations, meaning Massport operation. I said, yeah, give him a call, see, see if you got anything on it. So he called. I'll never forget the look on his face. He said, they want to talk to you right away. And he handed me his phone. And he said, Tom, all hell is breaking loose here. And I said, well, what's the matter? He said, we've got one plane at the time, Flight 11, American 11. We can't, the tower can't contact it. We didn't know anything about striking the tower at the time. They, didn't, they weren't putting that together. They just said, uh, planes, uh, not not answering um and it's off the radar because they turned the transponders off uh of these aircraft they terrorists knew enough to tr- turn the transponder off which means with the transponder on you're squawking and atc is picking up that radar blip and they're tracking you that's the way the system works well they knew enough to shut it off so now atc sees american 11 disappear off the screen 
and they don't know where it is because they're kind of not tracking it. So I said, okay, um, uh, let me, I'm going to call Ed Friendy. So I, I hung up and I called Ed and he said, yeah, yeah we got a, we got a bad situation going on here. Um, at, at this, he said, AT, uh, FAA tower just called me and said, they can't find 11 and they think it may have been the plane hit the World Trade Center. Now they're starting to piece things together. And I said, all right, make sure you get the Family Assistance Center and the Emergency Operations Center open. He says, already done. We're already moving on that direction. Uh, so the Emergency Operations Center, whenever there's a major incident, uh, all internal and external agencies come together at the Massport Fire Station on, on the airfield. Uh, and everybody has an assigned seat. We practice this in drills year after year after year in the event of, you know, God forbid, something bad going down. And sure enough, we're about to go through one of the worst days uh, in the history of aviation. So um, I, I said, you know, the Family Assistance Center is critical, too, because if you recall, this is right in the aftermath of, of um, the TWA uh, accident at JFK that blew up over uh, Long Island uh, and there was a huge investigation that went on. But if you recall, there was a very bad scene with the families interacting with the media on, on public TV and it was not good. So after that, the FAA and DOT came out with a mandate that all U.S. airports had to turn over family assistance to, uh, not U.S. airports, airlines had to turn over family assistance to the American Red Cross um, to handle it until the care teams that the airlines all have, but sometimes they're at their hubs and they have to fly to the destination of the accident. So hours, if not days can go by. So we actually practiced that and said, no, we're going to fill that void. Massport's going to fill that void in the event of an incident. So we had the Red Cross train our people. We had auditors, lawyers, uh, other people who weren't first responders all get trained on how to interact with a family member and, and clergy and whatnot. Uh, and, and we set up a, the ballroom at the Hilton Hotel at Logan to be the family assistance center. So a little bit of background on that. We were ready for it. And thank God we were not knowing we would have two airplanes soon. Mm -hmm. So family assistance center, operations center. And I said, I'm on my way. I'm, I'm getting out of here. Uh, I'm heading for the airport. So I'll never forget, I'm leaving the exhibit hall. I got a phone in one ear and a phone in the other ear. I'm talking to my secretary and I'm still talking to Ed. Um, and I'm saying, just get me on a flight. I don't care what you get me on, Don. Get me on a flight. So as we're moving there, we had to get back to the hotel and get our stuff. I said, meet us, meet here in five minutes because another member of the staff, uh, Gary Tobin, joined us. And I said, we're heading back. So I went up into my room and I'm packing. I flipped on the TV and I saw the second flight go in live because now the, the major networks are covering this thing. Again, not knowing it's a Logan United 175, but the network was aghast. Oh my God, a second plane. Um, so I, you know, bad enough a first plane, but now I said, we're, we're under attack. There's something, something radically wrong here. So we get downstairs. Now we're heading to the airport. The border's closing. Mm. Now the order has gone out by the FAA to ground everything. So now I got a closed border confronting me about an hour's drive from Montreal because we ended up getting in a rent-a-car. And saying, we're just going to drive. All right, we're just going to drive. I think we got the last rent-a-car. So it's four of us uh, in the rent-a-car, and we just started heading to the border. So I called the state police, or I had Ed Franny work with the state police to get us across the border and the way it ended up happening was they called me back and said we've reached out to former governor salucci who happened to be the ambassador for canada at the time they know you're coming you're all set there's going to be a vermont cruiser state police cruiser on the other side to escort you down i think it's route 89 um, so sure enough we got there they said who's kenton i said that's me they said, you need anything, sir? I said, no, appreciate your cooperation and help. Uh, there's a restroom. I'd like everybody to avail themselves to that because we're going to drive ahead of us. And uh, I got finally got across. And oh, by the way, a little side note to this. As I entered Canada, as I left my house Sunday morning, I said to my wife, do I need a passport for Canada? Here I am, the aviation director. I have so <laughs> 
do I need a passport? She said, why don't you take it anyhow? So I grabbed mm -hmm. it. When I got there Sunday and opened it, it was her passport. No. Yes. So here I am now trying to get out of the country on my wife's passport. So fortunately, my ID sufficed, my driver's <laughs> license, and the fact that we had all the help from the state police and the former governor to get us across. But a little side note on, on things that really could have gone wrong in a different way. So anyhow, we, we meet the uh, Vermont state police officer, and he said, uh, what do you need, sir? And I said, uh, or he said, how fast do you want to go, sir? And I said, I want you to live, and I want us to live. So go as fast as you can with that in mind. Thank you. So it was all lights and sirens down 89. We could only go 100 because the rental car wouldn't go anymore, but we were, we were moving pretty good. And we had a CNN radio station on, and I got phone intermittent cellular service. So we're picking up bits of details as we're driving, and we hear a second plane, um, and now confirmed it's a second one out of Boston, United 175. And there is another plane, um, maybe multiples. And we're hearing now the North Tower has collapsed, which was the second tower to be hit, uh, incidentally, that, that that came down first. So, and, and I, I, I was calling my wife, too, to, to let her know where, what was going on. And she said, please, you, you, can't, you can't believe what's going on. It's terrible. So I said, don't worry. We're in good hands. And, you know, we're, we're coming down 89. And now we hear the Pentagon's on fire. So I said, we're def this is definitely a war, something Something very, very bad and very wrong is happening here. So we continued down. We got to the New Hampshire border, and uh, New Hampshire State Police picked us up at that point, gassed us up on their dime at, at one of the state police uh, stations there. And uh, then I was told by the state police at Logan that they had a plane waiting for me in Concord. Uh, they were going to fly me the rest of the way. So. Uh, we went, we diverted to Concord Airport, um, and uh, Gary Tobin and I got on the state police plane. Sam continued uh, with the other person uh, down to Logan. So we flew the remainder of the way, and very, very eerie, because there was an F-16 on our left wing that I could look out at and see like I'm seeing you. And he gave me a thumbs up and I gave him a thumbs up and um, we continued to Logan uh, and landing at Logan. Obviously, there was nothing moving. We were the only airplane. And I remember my wife telling the story that she was outside talking to neighbors and we flew right over Hanscom and Winchester area to get to Logan. And they said, I wonder who that is. Who's that Yahoo up there uh, with the fighter jet? They said, that's Tom. So... We landed um, at Logan, taxied immediately to the uh, emergency operations center, the fire station where I got out. Uh, this was about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the afternoon now. Um, and I was met by Ed Frenny, the FBI, state police. And I was immediately briefed, even before I got into the room. They showed me the manifest of the two flights. And it was, you know, you, you wanted to, you, you just, you got sick to your stomach looking at it because you could pick the names right off. Um, and then they told me they had uh, Atta's bag. Atta, one of the lead terrorists, 11, uh, believed to be the one at the controls, flew in that morning from Portland, Maine, um, and, and thinking he was going to land behind security at Logan. But if those of you remember or recall, it's still the same, Logan Airport terminal, although you can connect now behind security. Back in the day, you couldn't. So he landed on US Airways Express on the US Airways side of Terminal B, only to find out he had to go through security again. So he had to cross the street, go through the parking garage, and re-go re -go, uh, through or redo security clearance at Logan. And made the flight, but his bag never made it. His bag misconnected, okay? The U.S. Airways Express never got his bag onto 11. So that was a vital piece of evidence. I said, well, what's in the bag? And they opened it up and they showed me. There was the flight manuals for 767, and there was um, the Quran. So right off the bat, we knew 
first of all, you know, never, no pilot would ever do that, even with a gun to their head. But that was hard evidence that terrorists were flying these airplanes because we had a flight manual on how to fly a seven, Boeing 767 uh, in the Quran. So we had crucial evidence right off the bat. Uh, from that point, I was briefed uh, uh, on several other things, went into the operations center, showed everybody how it worked doing, uh, doing their thing. Asked how the Family Assistance Center was going. They said it's fine. The families are there. Airlines aren't there yet, just as I had suspected, uh, which they couldn't be. I mean, United was coming from, American was coming from Dallas. They have a care team, professionally trained care team for these accidents. Was, was coming United, from Dallas. Was United coming from Chicago? United was coming from Chicago, I believe, John, yes. And yeah. um, United got there at 10 o'clock that night. American didn't get there until nine the next morning. So Massport was doing the critical interface with the families for a good period of time. And the, you know, the credit that goes to those people is enormous because when the airlines got there, their request of us was, can we have your people stay with us, please? They're doing such a great, you know, there was a rapport already developed with the families and our people. So the professional airline people asked for our people to stay on, which was a great compliment to their training uh, in advance of something like this. So from there, I was dragged off to a press conference, uh, the, my first press conference, which was, you know, over at the Hyatt Hotel. I was driven to the Hyatt Hotel. And when I pulled into the parking lot, I couldn't believe the amount of satellites and various news media that was there, uh, the, the ballroom was packed, packed with media. Uh, and TVs were breaking in live because events were still unraveling or unfolding uh, on that uh, terrible day of now World Trade Centers, two from Boston, Pentagon, one out of, uh, out of uh, Dulles, and the Shanksville crash uh, out of uh, Newark. So four aircraft that we knew that were airborne with terrorists on board, three hit their targets. Uh, the fourth didn't, thanks to the brave people on board that took it down over Pennsylvania. But the theory is that was headed for the Capitol or the White House. They think more of the Capitol because it's a tall enough structure that you can, you can hit. Um, uh, so now it was back to day-to-day -day operations with me dealing with Washington FAA were on calls uh, all the time with Washington FAA, with security, searching our terminals because we didn't know if things were booby-trapped, hmm. searching planes that never get off the ground that morning that had to turn around and go back to the gate because nobody knew if there were terrorists on board other aircraft. So we searched and researched every aircraft looking for weapons. And by then, by the way, we knew the weapons were razor blades, box cutters, because of the brave flight attendants on board, uh, Amy Sweeney and Betty Ong, uh, on American, who back in the day, John, you'll recall the seatback phones. Yes. They were kneeling behind the seats in the back, and they picked the phone up, and they called their ops center in yeah. Dallas. One of them called their lead in Boston to say, we've been hijacked. There are passengers in first class that have had their throats cut, and the crew, I believe, is also compromised. Uh, and we're, we're way too low, and we're going way too fast. Uh, and, you know, there was no mention of any guns. There was no mention of any uh, right. Uzis. They, what was reported at one point along the way that they had stolen Massport IDs and Uzis, all crazy stuff, but it was simply razor blades. Right. And the fact that the crew back then would exit the cockpit to try to quell a disturbance and leave the first officer or the captain to fly the airplane. And that sadly uh, led to the demise of the crew members because of the access, which then got quickly changed by the feds to the armored uh, cockpit doors to prevent anything or preclude anything from that happening in the future. But it was... Uh, you know, working with the FBI, trying to retrace the steps of the terrorists in Boston. We knew four came from the rent in a rental car uh, that later had a uh, was reported to us that they had an altercation in the central garage that morning because 
they opened their door and inadvertently, I'm sure, hit the person's door next to them. That person exited the car and, you know, got into a verbal exchange, but it was only led by him because they didn't answer. They simply sat there, four people still, never moved, never said anything. This person continued on to their flight. Later got grounded during the FAA order to bring every aircraft down, understood what was happening, called Logan State Police and said, go check this car. There was something fishy. Sure enough, it was a rental car, you know, four terrorists that came that were dealing, that were going on the United flight. The United 175 terrorists were in that car. They didn't want to blow their cover by getting into an altercation. So they kept silent as our guest. And um, so we, we retraced that. We found the car. Some came by taxi cab, stayed at local hotels. And Otter and his, uh, his companion came via Portland, having gone through security there and then redid security, as I said earlier, uh, on having landed on US Airways side of Terminal B. And we later found out they also made phone calls to each other before they boarded their aircraft from pay phones at the American Terminal and United Terminal, apparently saying it's a go. Uh, the, the operation was on. So uh, uh, later, you know, obviously we're having many press conferences, many meetings, security. The, the system is still grounded. The whole United States air system is grounded. We towed 3,000 cars out of the Terminal B parking garage because, again, not knowing if any cars were compromised with booby-trapped uh, those parking spaces are very close to the terminal, so we wanted to get them out of there. So we towed them up to Suffolk Downs. Uh, so we towed 3,000 cars and secured the airport and searched it to the best of our ability, uh, finding nothing, uh, thankfully. Um, and, you know, there was all kinds of uh, questions about security, um, you know, why Logan? And, you know, I'm the number one footnote in the 9-11 commission report. And my answer to the question on why Logan is because it was a geographical decision by terrorists, as was Newark, as was Dulles, to fly airplanes that they knew how to fly that were fully loaded with fuel, in that case, in the morning, heading west. Um, um, and in Boston's case, going close to the targets, be it the World Trade Center, uh, sure enough, the crystal clear, beautiful fall or early, late summer day gave them the opportunity to simply follow the Hudson River, which was their guide to these two towers sticking up in, in, the, in the air. And a trained pilot would tell you, because they only knew how to fly at altitude, they didn't know how to put flaps out, they didn't know how to slow it down. So they flew that, those airplanes almost at 500 knots. And to hit a target like that, which is like a needle in the sky, is not very easy to do, and they did it. They not only hit it, but they also tilted their wings and went through 15 stories, rather than if they went straight in, it might have been three stories. And so we all know the people above were trapped because the stairwells and elevators were taken out. There was no way for them to get down um, uh, based on the way they entered the buildings. Uh, and the fuel, again, fully loaded with fuel, all that fuel just spilled down the elevator shafts and the stairwells into the basements and then burned and eventually melted the steel, which supports that building, melted it enough that it, you know, lost its uh, stability and, and both collapsed. Uh, same thing with Dulles. They were going uh, past their target and they made a quick turn to come back to the Washington DC. And in Newark's case, it would have been a quick turn. Uh, and they had made that turn over Pennsylvania or heading, uh, back to Washington, D.C. when they were taken out by the passengers on board. So again, to us, it was a geographical decision, not certain airports because of certain lack of security or anything like that. It was just strategic, had the airplanes, had the fuel, and was close to the targets they were after. I mean, think about it. They had gone to Chicago or the next major set of airports where those types of planes are, would be at, they'd have to turn around and fly a long way east and maybe things would have changed uh, uh, when, when the uh, fighter jets scrambled, because the fighter jets did scramble finally, uh, but it was too late. Uh, they scrambled out of Barnstable, 
uh, here locally in race to New York, uh, only it was too late. And by that time, they had been given orders uh, that if any aircraft were threatening major cities, that they were ordered to shoot them down, uh, believe it or not. I'm not sure that would happen on the first aircraft or before any accident occurred. But once these accidents started happening, we knew we were up again. So I think the order was justified, but never executed. Tom, uh, talk a bit about, as we proceed, you know, in, in the ensuing days, proceed to the ensuing days, talk about the setup, the structure for uh, security, responsibilities for security at airports. And obviously we changed that with the creation of Homeland Security and TSA, but in those days it was different. Do you want to just describe that so people have a context on this? Sure. Um, the security responsibility of the security checkpoints were that was a uh, the air, it was an airline responsibility. So American had responsibility for their security checkpoint. They hired the security contractors. They were held accountable by the FAA, not Massport, by the FAA to do right. that security. Similarly, United was held. Uh, any airline was held accountable for security checkpoints. And in Terminal C uh, case, it was uh, United uh, that was responsible. So. Um, you know, that was later, you know, Massport had security responsibilities. I'm not saying we didn't. We had perimeter security responsibilities. Right. We had security right. responsibility of the airfield, fire crash crew rescue responsibilities for the airfield, uh, security badging responsibilities as dictated by the FAA. All minimum standards, by the way. You could exceed those, which Massport did in many, many cases. And that was made clear through the 9-11 Commission, when we had to testify on behalf of Massport, it was also made clear in the Marshall uh, Commission, uh, uh, Mar the Carter Commission, that was uh, locally done by the state. Right. Um, right. And we worked with our elected delegation. I mean, I can't say enough about Senator Kerry, Senator Kennedy, Kennedy for their support. Um, and to your specific question about security, I think we were the first, NASPA was the first to go public saying this needed to be federalized. Yeah. Not that anybody did anything wrong, but the game changed that morning. The game changed dramatically where this was an act of war and to have private security companies working for airlines, it needed to look more like border security is yeah. the way I termed it. Yeah. It had to look more like customs and immigration. So there was one entity that was dealing with all security the U.S. airport, so there's no excuse for nobody not talking to one another and not sharing intelligence and, and whatnot. So not saying it was because of us, but we, we did call for that, and it later was stood up as the Homeland Security Department to this day is the TSA that does the security, so the responsibility no longer rests with the airlines. It's a federal government responsibility. To that point, I was there were sort of two things I wanted to say, but one goes directly to the, the change in terms of security and our stand on, we need to do this and we need state-of-the-art equipment to do it. We need to outfit not only the checkpoints at the terminals, but the baggage screening, et cetera. And so about, uh, as soon as we could fly, I suppose, whatever it was, two to three weeks after 9-11, after, uh, uh, I arranged a meeting with a fellow at at DOT because you know there was no there was no TSA and there was no DHS yet, yeah. but uh, DOT had hired uh, Randy. You might remember his name, Tom. He was he was a consultant to DOT. Yeah. Randy, he was a he was he was very very good, and it was very fortunate for us that he was that good. And, and I'll I'll tell you why. So we I I set up probably using Senator Kerry's good offices. I set up a meeting with him. For Leslie Kerwin, who was our ANF director, and uh, Betsy Taylor, mm -hmm. who pitched the the idea, and you could you could speak about how this came about internally. I I, I was sort of the facilitator externally, and 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 arranged this thing to say, look, we're going to need this equipment, and Randy, of course, knew it existed. And was accessible, but it was going to be extremely expensive mm -hmm. to do the whole airport. Yep. So we flew down, and Matt made the pitch, and he was, as I say, he was good. 
in the meeting, this is an interesting factoid, in the meeting there was an assistant secretary for policy. And uh, this is the ninth month of the Bush-Cheney Bush administration. And you guys recall that Dick Cheney, who became vice president, had also been chief of staff to a president and secretary of defense. There wasn't much he didn't know about the federal government. So one of the steps he took on behalf of the administration was to appoint in many, many cases, an assistant secretary for policy in different departments. This happened to be DOT. We happened to be there as an airport operator to discuss the acquisition of equipment with the feds footing the bill, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and so in the midst of the meeting, this fellow who's an assistant secretary for policy speaks up and says, it's unclear to me why the federal government has to pay for this equipment. I don't understand why it can it be you and the airlines, you know, which was a, an incredible diversion from the point yeah. of the day. This is, this is basically within 21 days of 9-11. And this fellow is saying this, and I could see the look on, on Randy's face on the thing. And I had to say, I turned to the eye, I said, the security in the case of national defense is the responsibility of the federal government. It's yeah. not the responsibility of a city owned or state owned airport. You know, th this is how it works. And that gave me the clue that this fellow had never worked in transportation ever. Yep. He had no idea how these things work. So the meeting proceeded. Clearly we made tremendous progress. We're right on the path to get something approved. And we shorted it up, of course, with the good offices of Senator Kennedy and Senator Kerry, et cetera. But as I was leaving the meeting, I, and, and you will appreciate this now, but as I was leaving the meeting, I went over and reintroduced myself and spoke to this fellow for a few minutes. And lo and behold, his background was in the mining industry. Oh, jeez. And, oh, and he was from Wyoming. Wow, is that right? Wyoming. Well, so he was handpicked. Right. <laughs> handpicked, okay? But, well, and, and I don't think his view of the world ever changed. In other words, if it was up to him, we never would have received that hundred, what was it, $130 million worth? Of $135 million, yeah. Well, well that's, that's, a, that's a very interesting point, John, because if you look at the evolution of security at airports, mm -hmm. there was no security during the Cuban hijack days, right? You went, well, you went on board, and that's where all the guns were going, and people were being hijacked and flown, aircraft were being flown to Havana and so forth. So the security checkpoints were established to look for guns thereafter, okay? Right. That evolved over the years looking for bombs, looking for guns still, uh, or any other kinds of, of, of weapons. But to your point, on one of the things that came out once, we literally had to tear up the security plans because the world changed, okay? It wasn't just the security checkpoints now that needed to change. But to your point, whole baggage screening, even to that point, despite Pan Am 103, yeah. which had a bag in the belly of the 747 that went down over Lockerbie, uh, there was still no requirement to screen luggage. And people were appalled when they heard that because now everybody's sort of focused on security, which rightly so. Um, and we made the determination that, that, you know, feds or not, we're going to screen it. Okay. Even though we fought and went down there with your, your services and whatnot, got the money, we were going to do it anyhow because yeah. it, it was it was time, and we put a team together uh, to work twenty four seven. The contractors they were great. Everybody treated it like a war effort, which it was. And we stood up, and I think in six month time, the ability with the technical equipment because it wasn't just the equipment. We had a place we had to build places to put the equipment, bring power because sure. these yeah. things take high voltage to bring all the power. Build the rooms to house the equipment for the TSA, build the rooms to where the bags that get rejected to be hand searched and further searched that were being rejected by the technology. So yes, many, many changes came out of it, even though a bag bomb was not related to 9-11, it was just another secure, potential security flaw that mm -hmm. needed to be corrected and it was corrected. FAA then mandated by a date certain that all US airports had to have whole baggage screening. So it was not just Boston, uh, but everybody had to end up doing it. But we were we were down there, as you say, within two weeks after 9-11, making yeah. the point. Yeah. And I think up till that point, 
there was some procedure between the FAA, the airlines, and of course the contractors, where the FAA would get approximately 50 million bucks a year to deal with the, um, obviously they weren't doing baggage screening, you know, whole baggage screening, but at the checkpoints. And it's still unclear to me how that was distributed. I just remember the number because it was obvious the number was too small. Yeah, yes. You could not possibly support 300 airports across the United States with $50 million worth of, of uh, investment per year. Exactly. You know? And you couldn't then, and, and on top of it, and we've, we've gone through this now a couple of times, Tom, you couldn't even upgrade because no sooner you'd spend the 50, five years would go by, you should have better equipment. Better equipment, how do you get, yep. how do you get the better equipment? Well, you're, you're, the system's only getting 50 million a year. So, no. so that had to be dealt with. And, and it obviously, once DHS was created, I think in the fall, winter of, of uh, 0102, I think, I think I'm right about that. It, it took some time. Then of course, the TSA established legit budget targets for these things. That's and, right. And, and they were realistic. Thank God. Yeah, I mean, and, and that brings up another point of liability. Uh, talk yeah. just a couple of minutes about liability. I mean, obviously, there were lawsuits brought here, uh, yeah. as, as there should be, uh, but they were brought against just about everybody. Uh, Massport, yeah. New York, New Jersey Port Authority, uh, Metropolitan Washington Port Authority, the airlines, the manufacturer of the airplanes, manufacturer of the engines on the airplanes, uh, the security checkpoint company, I mean, everybody. Yeah. And these, these lawsuits went on for years, but thank God uh, for the 9-11 uh, uh, Settlement Fund uh, Commission, if you will, that was put in play that had monies that were being donated by the, the citizens of the U.S. Uh, and others, that the settlements were made outside of court to most 99.9% .9 of the families, a couple of families stayed in there for quite a while. I mean, Massport, I remember testifying, never got to court, but I remember going to a deposition and testifying for seven and a half hours, um, arguing or pushing back on accusations that were being made about Massport. Uh, but ultimately the judge uh, threw out Massport out of the case said there's no reason for Massport even to be in this case. Why are they here? Asking okay. the other lawyers. But that took over seven years. Sure. That decision was finally made that we were divorced of, of any responsibility uh, as a result of, you know, Carter Commission report, 9-11 Commission mm -hmm. report, our own testimony, and a judge looking at the facts saying, hey, there's no reason for Massport to be involved here. So I'm, unless you can convince me otherwise, they're out of here. So we were, we were, as I say, divorced from uh, right. any further actions, uh, but it took a long time uh, to get well, there. Well, I, I was going to say, I talked to Jen about this, that, yeah. that another thing that stood in the way of that is very, very difficult was that um, the airlines shortly after 9-11, I don't want to put days on it, but maybe a couple of weeks, pursued indemnification protection. Yes. Themselves. We get word of that, or uh, somehow we get word of it. Maybe Mike calls to DC or something. And um, I called uh, Dick Meyer, God rest him, who was the head of insurance for Massport internal, yep. smart as could be. We talked about it for exactly four minutes, and he said, "You better come over here. We're going to have to have a meeting on this thing. This is, you know, this is not good. Particularly with, I mean, on top of the airlines pursuing it, and you know, it's sort of like who's left standing." You know, I mean, I, I don't want to be brusque about it, but that's the reality. If, yeah. if one entity gets protection and another entity gets protection and you don't. And you don't. You're, well, you're way out there. So, so I, you, you were there. I think you were there myself. Uh, Mackey, who was the new general counsel at the time, yeah. had only been in the job for three weeks. Uh, uh, Bannard, Dave Bannard. Yeah. Remember, terrific attorney, and and Meyer, and we talked about it. And obviously, the the twist of the thing was uh, we needed to feel out whether there was some way we could get at least immediate, particularly if the airlines are doing this, immediate insulation indemnification on on these events. 
very, very difficult thing to broach, as you guys might imagine, in, in that environment, uh, so soon, too, after 9-11. Yeah. But that being said, um, I went down and talked with Kerry directly. And despite the atmosphere, he empathized completely and understood the impl implications that have been laid out to us, you, me, and others, that this could be a paralyzing thing for the authority and would prevent us from virtually operating, but certainly issuing bonds, you know, mm. yep. it, it just freeze the entire entity. And, and by the way, and put, put the Commonwealth in jeopardy because if right. the Port Authority can't handle it, then the Commonwealth is gonna have to step up. So, so Kerry was very, very good. Kennedy was very supportive. I went over to talk to the House committee folks and they, they were really up to date on what the airlines were trying to do. Uh, and look, the airlines are trying to survive. I mean, you remember the stock price of American Airlines two and oh. a half weeks after? Yeah. You and I could have bought the airline. Yeah. I mean, it's just insane. So I spoke to them and they were very up to date on the thing and, and empathized and said, well, let's see what you can do in the Senate because John Kerry was on the Commerce Science and Transportation Committee in the Senate with jurisdiction over uh, aviation. So needless to say, a lot of conversations, uh, cooperative. I went back to the House guys. They said, you know, it's one thing that's sort of troublesome. Because of the disaster with the towers, and, and Jen, I know, has the statistics on this, it wiped out innumerable senior staff for the New York, New Jersey Port Authority. Right. We're not really even capable at that moment of expressing a position or point of view on virtually anything. And um, there's 84 okay. employees, including 37 yep. Port Authority police officers, their executive director, their superintendent, the police, they all, you know, passed away. That's where their headquarters was. So. Yeah. So the, well, I, house, you know, the house folks were kind enough to, as they, as everyone has taken the steps to, give some protection, they were kind enough to include New York, New Jersey in that, even though New York, New Jersey really was not able to say much. So anyway. No, that, that you, you raise a, another point in memory here that um, I do recall Dick Meyer um, and you talking to me. Um, and I went into a meeting with Senator Kennedy and Senator Kerry yep. at the Emergency Operations Center, because they came there. Uh, and with Jenny Buckingham, and I walked in, and I can remember to this day, they both said, what do you need? What do you need, Tom? And I raised this liability issue, and I said, yeah. my understanding is there's legislation pending, or it's about to happen, or may have happened, where the airlines and others are looking for that. And I said, Massport, as well as these other airports, need to be part of that. You know, due respect, or you're going to have the scenario that you just described unfold. And they got it. They got it and went to work. So. Yes, they did. They did it. They did a terrific job. Uh, Banner did a great job on our language. You know, it was needed, and um, and and really exceptional in that, given the environment at the time. Yeah, you have to even think about this. I know. Right. I know. Really tough. Really tough, you know. So, you're absolutely right. Not the easiest thing to think about, but you know, you, you mentioned opening the airports. Um, you know, airports opened. That was Tuesday. The incident occurred. The airports opened Thursday afternoon, with a variety of very strict restrictions and new security amendments that kept coming. I mean, they were coming out multiple amendments daily for weeks, if not months as we rebuilt the security plan for, uh, for the U.S. airports. But I raised that point only because we stayed closed until Saturday. Um, and there were many questions why. And I think I described earlier, I wanted to make sure, as did top-notch security people, that we had every chance of any booby trap or anything that may, terrorists may have left behind, that we turned that place upside down to ensure that wasn't the case, number one. Uh, and then number two, uh, MWA, uh, they didn't open national until weeks yeah. later. Weeks uh, later. When I, when I flew down, at least on two first occasions of flying down there, which was a couple of weeks after, we, land, we had a flight at Dulles. Yeah. 
had a flight to Dallas. And, yeah. and you're, you're right. National, I don't think, opened for six weeks or some, something really yeah. amazing. Yeah, Reagan stayed closed. And then when they did open, we had to put special restrictions in. Not only did you have to go through all those security protocols to get through security, but then you had to be isolated at the gate that was going to Reagan National. And dogs that were there, the state police dogs and TSA and others doing other kinds of searches, secondary again, yet again, uh, just to ensure that we had multiple layers of yeah. security uh, in, in place here. And, you know, the other point is we brought the Israelis in, just to mention that as a side note, that... Uh, Rafi you know, Ron. Rafi Ron. Yep. We, uh, nobody does it better, and we need to have, I think, the best in the world. Uh, Ginny Buckingham brought it to me, and I said, let's do it. And they were great. I mean, great because he was great, because he knew he, he couldn't turn Logan into Tel Aviv. Right, right. Okay. He got that, but we took the best we could take from Tel Aviv and introducing the various layers of security, implemented them that, and I hinted at this earlier, going above and beyond the, the federal mandates that we've done much more than that over the years um, relative to security, a lot of which can't be talked about uh, because it would be security if we, we advertised what we were doing, but it, it's still going on to this day as a result of and by the way, you mentioned the point of technology changing. That has to evolve because the threat evolves. Mm -hmm. You can't have these machines five years old with a new threat out there. You have to evolve these technology as the threats evolve. And thank God we're doing that now uh, and have been doing it as a, as a federal government because that's the only way to defend it because, as you said, it's a, it's a federal uh, and it's a threat to the United States of America, not a threat to Logan Airport right. or Dulles or individual right. airports. It's, it's a threat to this country that has to be met with a response from the federal government. Absolutely. It's, it, it, it's a defense issue. You're defending the country. Yep. You know, and, and I don't think we'd ever want to get in a situation again where the city of Cleveland has to be responsible for all the security no. at Hopkins okay. Airport. I mean, nope. that, that makes no sense to me. So. Nope. But it, it has Tom, evolved, thank goodness. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, you know, Tom, you hinted that, you know, Massport and, and Logan particularly went above and beyond. And I think that really became a national example. And I know a lot of times airports and security personnel have come uh, to kind of learn from the folks at Massport. Can you talk a little bit more about the importance of that? You know, I think it was started at or just soon after 9-11, the 8.30 a.m., you know, daily briefing. Yeah. Um, that was created and, and certainly some of the I think even too I looked up there was an innovation behavior recon program that you all kind of implemented that, that was That's something right. that was something that was a big deal certainly after 9-11. Yeah very very good point um, so much happened um, yeah we implemented um, a daily 8 30 uh, briefing we used to meet with the airlines routinely but as I said things were changing so fast and so much but just to, even to take a step back from that, Logan got hit hard. We got hit hard. I mean, you know, lost, you know, the worst nightmare for an aviation director is to lose one airplane. I lost two that morning. And they took the World Trade Centers down. Not my wildest dreams would I ever imagine anything like that happening. So we felt, even though, you know, there was blame going around, it eventually got cleared, thankfully. But we also felt the responsibility to rebuild our security to be the best, okay? Because, you know, we were, we get hit hard, and in many cases, we didn't wait for the federal government to catch up. That's not a criticism of the federal government. They're dealing with, as John said, 300 airports. Yeah. People in California are going, what are you talking about? Right. You know, it didn't happen to them. It happened to us. And so there's a different feeling when it hits you. So we were implementing things over and above and we did it even after the FAA and DOT and TSA stepped in and said, you will and you must and you have to. To this day, we exceed that dramatically and uh, for good reason. And we felt a responsibility and, and it was sort of rebuilding the spirit of the airport as well, because people, again, felt a lot of uh, hurt based on what happened. Uh, and out of that, again, because information was coming so quickly and things were happening so fast, we have to have an 8.30 meeting every morning. Airlines, TSA, Massport, State Police, Fire Department, hotel security, 
security companies, because then there were still security companies running these checkpoints. TSA right. hadn't get stood up yet. So we had standing room only in the media room every single morning at 8.30, and we were sharing information of what happened the previous 24 hours, and we were looking at the next 24 hours. We weren't trying to look ahead six months or a year because things were happening and things were so fluid. We were only looking at mm -hmm. yesterday, today, and tomorrow. To this day, that meeting still happens, and the room is still in overflow, believe it or not. And that's the kind of sort of spirit that's behind not just Massport, but all of the private sector operators, the hotels, as I said, the airlines, uh, the TSA, the federal government. They're still all in that room every single day, to almost 20 years later. Incredible. It is amazing how um, it is amazing how event an event can change the conduct of industry and government. You know that that you usually look at you usually look at things through well, what if there's an event? What are we going to do? Mm -hmm. Clearly, in this case, the event dictated what we have had to do. Yep. And and all these changes we've discussed, and even more than we haven't discussed. So the impact, besides emotionally, the impact has been enormous. Yeah, and you know, obviously, uh, we're still a target. This country, we read about it, see it on the news every day, um, and unfortunately, uh, we're still a target. We cannot let our guard down. We must not let our guard down. We have to evolve with the threats and stay ahead of them, which is not an easy thing to do, uh, but you have to stay ahead of these threats um, because they're growing each and every day. I mean, just look at the World Trade Centers. Yeah. They tried to take that down, I think in 1996, yes. with the garage, the bomb. bomb they didn't the give up. They didn't give up, obviously. They came back with another plan. So, so be alert, be on your guard. That's exactly right. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, you know, to meet with us today. And it was very interesting. I learned a lot that I did not know about. And I don't know if folks, folks did. So I um, appreciate everything you did then and, and for talking with us today. Great. Thank you as well. And stay safe. Stay safe.